Welcome to episode 133 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Support for this episode comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, reminding you to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. Avoid single-use products whenever possible. That's those little plastic bags. And remember to bring your reusable bags with you while shopping. Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. I'm Stephen Clark Abrams, your host. My mission is to bring you fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. People sharing their stories are the same people we see each day walking down the street, drinking a good cup of joe, or sitting at the bar drinking a cold beer. I feel we all have a story to share, and I want to bring you stories which you will connect with and add good energy to your day. Sharing stories allows us all to learn and grow, so we may all live full lives. So remember to get out there and share this podcast with your friends so people can live a little bit more full lives. My guest today is Andy Barden, a mountain guide, mountain athlete, professional photographer, and entrepreneur. Andy has already lived several different chapters of life, which range from climbing to guiding and professional photography with National Geographic. Each stage in life, Andy has given 100% so he could be the best at what area he was dedicating his time and energy to. Now Andy is stepping into a new world, the world of distilling, and is launching an agave spirits company. Today, Andy will share with us what it takes to be a professional photographer and make a change to become a distiller. Andy also shares with us how the right relationships with partners can help you create a brand to drink to. Andy, thank you for taking some time out of your wild schedule that you have being an entrepreneur and joining me here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Thanks so much. You're, you're very welcome. Let's start off with how and when you landed here in Jackson Hole. What is Share with everybody, what is your connection to this magnificent place that the lucky of us are fortunate enough to call home. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, a student at Colorado state university from 2000 to 2004. I went to, to college in Fort Collins at CSU. And I loaded up with like a ski club when I was a freshman um, in a, in a big van with a bunch of other, you know, freshmen and sophomores, none of us had cars or anything. And we came out here and I stayed in uh, the Aspens and went snowboarding for a couple of days and was instantly just like, what is this place? You know, hmm. I took I took the tram up and we drove in at night, so I, I hadn't seen anything. I took the tram up and we hooked into 10 sleep bowl underneath Corbett's and everything. And I, I was just like shocked. It was like, I don't know what they've got going on here, but it seems like a loose rowdy program and I love it. And, uh, you know, that sort of planted the seed years later after I graduated for me just to, to move up here and to carve out a lifestyle of my own. That was, that was the initial seed. And then after I graduated from college, I moved to Yosemite national park in California. I was a passionate climber and I worked as a housekeeper changing sheets and scrubbing toilets so I could rock climb after hours and on weekends. And, uh, and sure enough, I got plenty of climbing in um, on, you know, some of the iconic faces there, Half Dome, El Capitan, Washington Column, Leaning Tower, just these big granite monoliths. Um, and that was a way for me to push myself and learn sort of my own 
physical limitations, um, as well as self-imposed mental limitations, which then translates to entrepreneurship, which I'm sure we'll get to. And as that season in Yosemite Valley came to a close, um, it started to snow. And I think it was November of 2004, packed up, you know, my car and drove to Jackson, not knowing anybody and crashed at a, a college friend's parents' house. He wasn't here, but a guy who grew up here and I crashed in his dad's basement, picked up the daily and started making phone calls for jobs. And uh, back then, you know, there were tons of places to live. There were still lots of jobs, but there were tons of places to live. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, I had a job bartending at the Four Seasons, which I was not qualified for. <laughs> <laughs> and I found lodging in East Jackson, you know, with uh, a woman who's become a good friend who grew up here and, and instantly was just sort of plugged into the community. And that was the beginning for me in 2004. Fabulous. And the rest is history, as people like to put it. Um, and I was reading up on your your website, and it was talking about how you um, were a National Geographic photographer. You um, have yourself down as, as as an athlete and a mountain guide. Um, you've done you've done a lot of stuff, and now that you have your own business as well, you have a podcast as well on uh, Wild Common Podcast. Um, you're going after it, and I'm interested to get a a feel from you when you said that with your climbing, that it provided your physical limitations and brought you to in touch with what your mental limitations are. And how did that climbing experience and, and being in touch with your, your mind and your body physically help you become a photographer for national geographic, help you through the process of being a mountain guide. And yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're all inextricably linked to some degree, but I think it was taking the time to reflect on the lessons learned in the mountains and then apply those to my personal life and to my business. And to be a little bit more precise about that, when I moved to Yosemite Valley, what I thought was impossible, climbing El Capitan became possible. And I recognized that my mental barrier, my wall of disbelief was dictating my success or failure on some of those larger objectives. And as those objectives began to fall as I became successful and I failed a bunch. I tried to climb, you know, Half Dome and uh, El Cap and yada, yada. And, and I bailed a couple times like everybody does in their early days as they cut their teeth. But I started to recognize that my mental uh, and self-imposed limitations ended up dictating the success of those, you know, climbing adventures. And so I started to apply that to, to work and my personal life. Um, and those lessons have served me well over the years. And so, you know, after bouncing between Yosemite Valley and Jackson, you know, Yosemite in the summers, Jackson in the winters for a few years, I had accrued um, enough of a, a climbing resume, if you even want to call it that, but um, enough successes in the climbing world that the president of Exum Mountain Guides, Nat Patridge, reached out um, and asked if I wanted to guide for, for Exum in the Tetons. And early on, you know, when I moved here as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, or I guess when I moved here as a 21-year-old, that path didn't seem like an option. Again, like that's a mental barrier of disbelief. And it became an option. And so as that wall fell down, you know, you just learn. It's just experience. And so I worked for Exum for a number of years, guiding people up, you know, in Tetons. And I always had a passion for photography. And so I'd bring my camera in tow. And in the off seasons, I would shoot, you know, my camera for me was bartending in the winters and mountain guiding in the summers and in the off seasons. 
I would work odd jobs, uh, whether it was construction, landscaping, but I was always shooting photos and I started to sell those photos. And I remember the specific moment where I was in Yosemite Valley when I decided that I was going to pursue and become a photographer. And that click, that shift of making that conscious choice and having the self-belief that it could happen then sent me on the rabbit hole of like, okay, well, how? And then you go into process and you learn and you take online courses, yada, yada. But it was that specific moment of choosing that it could be done. Other people have done it. Why not you? That barrier of disbelief came down. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, the door opened and an opportunity was there for it to be a possibility. And so that's sort of how I think that they were all inextricably linked to me. And being a photographer is a, it's a very busy industry. There's, there's a lot of photographers out there. What, what type of photography did you pursue? And what was it like going through that process to say, to remind yourself that you are at the professional level? Well, there's a couple questions there. I mean, first, the, the work that I pursued was, I think, a you know, the work that most photographers should pursue. I know that's a big statement, but I think that photographers should, if they want to have longevity, pursue work that is a reflection of themselves, which is to say that they pursue things that they have a unique perspective on that nobody else in the world can document like they can. And so for me that, you know, started in the climbing world and my, you know, the first image that was published was on or by Black Diamond, uh, based out of Salt Lake City, the equipment manufacturer, and they bought some climbing photos of um, friends of mine on El Capitan. And at the time, you know, as a bartender or changing sheets as a housekeeper, uh, 500 bucks for a photo, you know, that's a lot of sheets. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of days in housekeeping. Yeah, that's a lot of toilets being scrubbed. Uh, so that for me was like, oh, we can, you know, if I do this, you know, three, four times a month, um, I can quit these other jobs and transition. And uh, my, my sort of big break came um, in 2012, where I had an opportunity to go on an international expedition. And that allowed me to, to quit, you know, working the side jobs and just to focus wholly on photography um, and, and cinematography. Those things are now linked because cameras shoot both. Um, but my work has predominantly been in the mountains uh, with athletes in, you know, hard to reach places. And uh, so it pulled on a, a couple different skill sets of mine, you know, not the creative or not just the creative um, image making stuff, but also in climbing and being comfortable moving swiftly in the mountains. Congrats for you to be zeroed in on that focus and finding, realizing that for you to be successful in that world, it had to be something that spoke to you. I am very interested to know what was your first international expedition that you were invited to go on in 2000, uh, 2012. Um, that was with National Geographic to Mount Everest. Um, no way. Yeah. So that's, you know, I, I know you've had other podcast guests on who've had, you know, far flung adventures similar to that. And uh, it's a small industry. We all know each other, but you know, when that op opportunity came up, um, I jumped on it and that, you know, became the springboard, I think, of, uh, I guess I want to say like legitimacy as I move forward, where I could reference that. And, you know, that became part of, you know, a roster of wins. And then that grew, you know, that grew into commercial advertising work, 
in other areas. I shot some stuff for Wyoming's Board of Tourism. Don't blame me if it's crowded here, but, <laughs> um, you know, the work has grown into other areas, you know, for ad advertising as well. But it was rooted in that rooted in those passions that I was intimately knowledgeable about. So I was able to build a book of authenticity there that I think was attractive to clients. And, and now you are owner of a brand of tequila and you have a podcast and, and they're both called wild common, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. And yep. so as, as time went on, um, you know, I became more sort of business focused in the photography world, not just uh, creatively focused to survive in today's competitive landscape. You have to have some business chops and marketing savvy. And I've, you know, since branched out and started this agave spirits company that is procuring tequila and mezcal both from Mexico. Um, and I'm using my skill set as a storyteller, as a visual storyteller and communicator, um, you know, to tell the stories of the the families that we're partnered with and the traditions in Mexico and and how these spirits are made. So it's been really exciting, entrepreneurial, challenging, and really exciting for sure, especially with the COVID curveball. <laughs> Everybody's COVID, whatever uh, the COVID, the COVID ball, the COVID learning distancing. It's, it's been a challenge for everybody in, in their own right. Andy, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to be back to learn more about what it's like to create a brand in a crowded market. Uh, so we'll be right back, Andy. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling wants to remind you to use those recyclable bags whenever you go shopping for groceries, or other stores around town. Reusable bags are good for the environment and your wallet. That's because you don't have to buy bags from your retailer. Wash your bags frequently and bag your own items whenever possible. We've already helped remove millions of single-use plastic bags from the waste stream. Now, let's reduce the amount of paper bags purchased. Helpful hint, just put some reusable bags in the trunk of your car. Food waste composting, in addition to yard waste composting, is available at the Trash Transfer Station facilities. Call 733-7678 for up-to-date hours of operation. Andy, welcome back. We were just talking about your cre you've created a brand of agave spirits, tequila, mezcal, to talk about the history of how products are made in Mexico and it connects to you have your podcast connected to that as well. I'm, I'm interested to learn how you brought those together and, and how is it helping you um, build your brand as, as an owner? Yeah. I mean, brand is a series of intangible associations that a consumer has with a given product or service. And my visual images and the stories that I choose to tell, um, you know, on my, web, on my website, on social media, and, and a ton more is coming, um, as well as my podcast, I think are all touch points that help build that association or that brand. So the podcast has been fantastic, you know, as a way to connect with people like I'm doing with you remotely during COVID. I had about two years of work going uh, into COVID on this project, starting this company. And Fortunately, you know, the 15 or 20 trips or whatever that I had taken um, to Mexico in terms of procuring products and, you know, establishing relationships with partners and 
going through a bunch of legal registration, all that stuff had occurred before COVID. Um, so the podcast just blossomed as a result of wanting to, you know, selfishly touch base with friends and um, other people in, you know, shared industries and communities that I consider sort of part of our tribe, part of our community of people that I associate, you know, with the brand. And these are creatives, these are athletes, these are movers and shakers, other National Geographic photographers who are documenting the natural world around us. And so I think they're all linked, you know, they're all part of these, like I said, intangible associations that create an emotion a feeling. Um, and that's what I define really as brand. So tell me about the emotional feeling. I, I resonate with that. And I'm interested to learn from you talking about spirits. What is the connection that you are asking from people to your brand, to the story of the people who are making the products you've partnered with? Well, I, I mean, it started for me, like I, and I'm just going to back up a tiny bit for context, if that helps. Yeah, um, please do. I injured my lower back like three years ago, um, mm. L4, L5, herniated disc, yada, yada, long story short. Um, and I eliminated spirits from my life for six months, um, as well as anything inflammatory. So that would be sugar, bread, dairy. And that was a very conscious effort um, to re reduce inflammation in my body and to heal, which I did. And as I started to reintroduce spirits, um, I, I became acutely aware of how they made me personally feel. I would, you know, have a glass of wine or two and wake up at 2 a.m. wide awake. And that's my body's glycemic response to the sugar. Or if I had a couple beers, you know, my, my body had a different response and, you know, felt sort of inflamed or something. I guess would be the, the short of it. And as I reintroduced myself to agave spirits in particular, there was a cleaner option there that I felt worked well for me. And as I started to sort of explore and talk to other people um, who were athletes, there were a number of other people who were only drinking agave spirits. And, and that sort of set me down this path of learning about agave spirits and geeking out on sustainability and additive free products which brought me to Mexico and I was shooting images to pitch a story on sustainability in the agave industry to uh, a large magazine um, in February of 2019. So right before COVID happened. So the story's on hold for now, but I was, I was down in Mexico and, and sort of documenting uh, or sorry, 2018. It was almost a year before I was documenting sustainability in, in Mexico and, the world of agave spirits, which, which is just a, a super beautiful culture, visually amazing to document. And that sort of set me on the path of, of learning about these spirits and saying, you know, there's an opportunity to storytell here to people like us who work hard, play hard, you know, live to celebrate on weekends, but also grind it out in the mountains and do what we do and have these cleaner options. And so those were sort of my initial hooks, I guess, into the world of agave spirits. And then, you know, you had asked specifically, and I'm coming back to your question about these associations um, and emotional associations. I'm personally lacking, uh, I think, some socialization right now and a sense of community because of COVID. And I know a lot of people are. Oh, yes. So the, <laughs> the podcast, and I know that's something you're doing as well. The podcast is a way to create like, a bug in somebody's ear where they get to go on a walk and listen to people talk and laugh and have conversations. Um, but the emotional associations, I think, you know, it's like, 
and I don't know how deep you want to go with it, but it would be like trust, loyalty, honesty, sustainability, transparency, community. I mean, those are values. And I think that as I start to roll out our brand, um, those are the feelings I want people to have when they think about our brand. I, I appreciate all of those um, those values. Those are very important to me when in the businesses that I operate and the people I I connect with and communicate with. Well, and in the businesses that you're involved in, there isn't a legal requirement to have the ingredients on the label. And so what you think you're drinking versus what you're drinking, if you go down the rabbit hole, there can sometimes be a disconnect. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to have gone through a third-party verification process with Wild Common that it's verified additive-free. And that's something that, you know, that transparency about process and ingredients is something that is foundational for our brand. You know, it's agave, water, and yeast. Um, it gets, you know, distilled twice in copper pot stills. And it's, in my mind, a very clean spirit. And is that process uh, for tequila or mezcal or both? And what's the difference between the two? How, how, how are they classified? Yeah. So the, the process of distillation is separating alcohol and water. Mm -hmm. And so that is the same for both. Um, there are certainly uh, choices that the distiller makes, which creates a flavor profile that's a little bit different. But for the most part, people are using copper pot stills and they're distilling agave spirits twice. So the water and the liquid go through a copper coil, the, li the liquor gets separated, um, then it gets distilled a second time again to increase the proof, the alcohol content. And, and then you have uh, essentially a high proof tequila. We're choosing not to add a ton of water to ours. Most people are putting out a product at 40% alcohol volume, which means they've diluted it more with water. We're at 42%. So it's a little bit more of a, um, I don't want to say high def, but it's a little bit more of a uh, honest flavor profile of what the agave has to offer. And within the world of agaves, there are different species, same with succulents or anything else you may have around your house, houseplants. The blue Weber agave is a species of agave, and that's what's used to distill and make tequila. And the world of mezcal has probably 15 or 20, maybe even 30 different op other options, other species you can use. Fantastic flavors, fantastic names, all endemic to Mexico. So Tobala, Espadine. Aracano, Tepextate, um, just these incredible expressions that are made from um, just that type of agave. And so while it's a little confusing, tequila is technically, a, because it's type of agave, it's kind of a type of a mezcal. If, if you can think of that, it's in the same family as all these other agaves. It's just one type. And it's the most popular that everybody in the US knows about. But if you go down to Mexico, there's all these regional variations and some people call it vino de mezcal, like the wine of, of the mezcal plant. And while blue Weber agave is one option, there's, like I said, 20 or 30 different options. And then the way Joel Velasco produces it versus Salvador Rosales, you're going to get two different flavor profiles based on the terroir of the region, as well as the process that they choose to uh, use to distill the spirits. I'm, I'm very curious about the agave plant and, and I've seen agave syrup, agave sugar. I'm, I'm curious as to what other uses this plant has other than distilling, you know, agave based spirits, but then a, a sugar, is it, 
pretty versatile in that part of the world. Yeah. And I mean, because it was an endemic resource, it was used for years for clothing, for fibers, for papers, for you name it. I mean, you can grind it up and make all sorts of different things with it. You can make something called pulque, which is uh, what was known to be like the first fermented beverage in Mexico, you know, and so there's all sorts of medicinal uses and it hasn't always just been for tequila for gringos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cause I think here in the U S people hear agave and it's mainly, you know, alcohol. Yep. But it, it's interesting to hear that the versatility of this plant, it, does it grow naturally or did yeah. it come from yeah, so it is, some other place? No, it's endemic to Mexico and okay. um, each species has sort of its own um, unique characteristics and preferences. So some grow higher in the mountains, mm -hmm. um, some grow better down by the coast and the life cycles are extremely long. So uh, your average tequila plant should be like seven years old before it gets harvested. And some of these other varietals that I was talking about, Araqueño, Tobala, these are types of mezcals. Some of their life cycles are 20, 25 years. And so when you're drinking some of these agave spirits, there's a whole lot of energy and terroir and effort that went into producing them. I mean, you're talking about a 25-year-old plant that then gets harvested by you know a family sometimes those seeds will get replanted only to have their children harvest it. I mean, it's really incredible if huh. you think about it. And you spoke about sustainability and what is the earth benefit to the agave plant and, and harvesting it? Because compared to an almond, almond trees take a ridiculous amount of water to grow almonds. They're known as water consumers <laughs> big yeah. time well the sustainability industry or sorry uh question is a, a very complex one we can geek out on it for hours i'll try and simplify it but because the life cycle of agave is so long there is a boom bust cycle meaning supply and demand of the raw material available on the market and so when i see my neighbor making a bunch of money off of growing agave I go out and I plant a bunch of agave. Fast forward seven years, there's too much agave. And there's a high demand right now in the US for agave spirits, and there is a really low supply. And so I know it would be surprising to hear that there's an agave shortage right now, but there is. So the cost of agave is very high. Uh, these plants aren't being allowed to reproduce naturally, sexually which requires bats and birds and bees to pollinate them. Instead, they're being harvested very young, immature, which isn't allowing the plant to evolve. And so as climate change is occurring and as it's snowing in Texas, there's longer droughts, there's colder winters. The plant isn't able to adapt to some of those changes in the climate. And we're also taking away uh, those flowers for the pollinators, which is essentially uh, food. So it gets really, really complex, but the short of it is that there's a really long growing cycle. And if you think about chocolate or coffee or other commodities, the price is driven by supply and demand. And right now there's really, really low supply and really, really high demand. And COVID has amplified that even more. A lot of people are drinking tequila at home, but a lot of people are drinking tequila. Mm -hmm. And so we've gone out and we've partnered with a number of folks and we've created agave nurseries. And there are some images that I'll share, um, you know, in the next couple months about this, but we've created um, agave nurseries to help replenish anything that we take and give back to farmers, uh, specifically in impoverished regions of Mexico. 
which is like coastal Jalisco or rural Oaxaca up in the mountains. And then we've also uh, set aside a number of plants that will go to seed, which means that um, the plants will then uh, evolve essentially to the changing, the changing climate. And those will be, you know, planted throughout the region, ideally helping. So I see you rolling your eyes a little bit. I know it's complex. Um, no, no, it's, it, it's, um, it's very helpful and, and interesting to know because, you know, farming has become all about getting as much cash out of it as possible in, in many ways, but there's a lot of companies who are putting the stake in the ground, such as what I hear from you and saying, we do want to make money, but we can also make money by being responsible for the environment and sustainable for the communities where the product is being grown and the impact that that has. So, yeah, and, and I think from the consumer perspective, like I referenced early on, there isn't a requirement to say what's in the bottle, whether it's mm-hmm. wine or beer or anything else. And our effort is to create transparency. And our effort is to allow the consumer to understand exactly what they're buying, where it comes from, how it was grown, who produced it, how it was produced. And just to know, to have the choice, like you, you get to make the choice. Do you want to buy something with a bunch of chemical additives in it? Or do you want something that is like, you know, I don't want to say ethically sourced, but transparent in its uh, supply chain. And I think that that's important. And you see that throughout, you know, every other industry in terms of food and organic food and traceability, Um, you know, so why not spirits? I'm interested to know if you're using blockchain to keep track and be able to give people the confidence that you are following these, um, this process. I I'm friends with a guy named Christian Shearer. He and I did a class together a few years ago. He has this company called Terra Genesis and they've now gotten into blockchain, which helps companies who are talking about clean products, sustainability, that the blockchain helps track everything from, the grower all the way to when it gets to the shelf at the, at the store. I'm not currently uh, using blockchain. That's a very interesting proposition, but I will consider that as I grow, I've got plenty on my plate right now. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, we're talking about communities where like there isn't necessarily electricity where they produce and like, you know, in some of these rural regions of Oaxaca and the mountains, it's a handshake deal. It's, you know, photographs and videos. And uh, for me, sharing that stuff via social and on our website is, is my way of sharing with the consumer internally, how we organize. Yeah, it's different. There's Excel spreadsheets, there's calendars, there's, you know, you know, we're having to project seven years out to think Mm -hmm. about like, you know, replenishing some of these crops. So yes, it's more complex on our end of things. um, But blockchain has not become part of our workflow quite yet. We're using like WhatsApp <laughs> to message back and forth, you know, in some of these communities. And, uh, and like I said, it's a handshake deal built on trust. And I understand where um, some community members are a little leery at first. Like, why is this guy replenishing? You know, he took a hundred plants worth of Mezcal. Why is he giving us a hundred seedlings? What does he want? Um, well, the answer is nothing. I want, you know, sustainability. I want to empower communities to learn to replenish their own crops. And I'm doing all of this with partners in Mexico 
who are way more forward thinking than I am in this industry, who are third, fourth generation, you know, tequileros or mezcaleros. Um, and they care deeply about their land and about their communities. And I'm just coming in to help storytell that to consumers and provide some economic resources. Fabulous. Fabulous. So buying your brand, your products helps um, some of these small communities to be sustainable. They can, they'll thrive. They'll, they'll be alive. And, and it's fabulous that you can do some of the stuff with a handshake. I, I wish we could do more with just handshakes. I know all of our <laughs> legal contracts up here in the U S Oh man. <laughs> oh man. Yes. And I also, uh, you know, I hope that it, um, like I, you know, started earlier on, on a rant about, you know, transparency, sustainability, like values. I hope that it plants the seed in some consumers, you know, about, asking where some of their spirits come from and how they're made and how the people who are producing them are being treated. And if you want to go into the fair trade end of things, like you can go way down the rabbit hole. If not, you can just feel good about your purchase. And even if it's just knowing you have a verified additive free product, you want to share with friends or put in your own body, if that's it, like I consider that a win. It is. Are your products considered fair trade? Um, they're not fair trade. There's no uh, fair trade certification in the agave spirits industry yet. Hmm. That's a stretch goal that I'm working on uh, actually with one of my former professors from Colorado State University who um, helped create the fair trade certification in the chocolate world and in the coffee world. So yeah, we're working on it, chipping away, but that's going to take years and tons of, yeah, no is the short answer. Okay. <laughs> there, there's no certification. Uh, not at this time, as you right. said, not yet. Yeah. No, I, I feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill at times, but uh, making progress all around. And the spirits in and of themselves are something that I'm incredibly proud of. They go far beyond anything I've ever had in terms of like quality. And, uh, you know, if that connects you as a consumer to the Rosales family in Jalisco, Mexico, you know, and you go down the path of learning, well, what else do they produce? You know, what are their family spirits? I think that's really cool. And are you, is your product on the shelves of stores around the country right now? No, we are importing um, in a couple of weeks. And okay. so as I work through some of the logistics with, you know, getting into the state of Wyoming, I will keep you posted certainly, but we are bottling and importing uh, very shortly. So we've done a, a couple batches of production now. Mm -hmm. that whole process, you know, the R and D, the back and forth working with, um, our master distiller, his nickname is Chava. You know, he and I, I took multiple trips down there and, you know, he and I put our heads together and what do we like? What do we, you know, what can we do? That's a little bit different. So we combined a couple different processes that he and his family have been doing for years to come up with a unique recipe that we feel is a good representation of an artisanal tequila. That is to say, you know, an unmanipulated, uh, true flavors of agave. And so his name's on the front of the label. We've got, you know, the entire production process is on the back of the bottle in a nod to transparency and honesty, like we were saying. So soon is the answer. Quarter two, um, it should be available in Wyoming. Cool. Well, I, I look forward to seeing it on the shelf at the liquor store in Jackson Hole Marketplace. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Andy, I've enjoyed the time that we've got to spend together today. This has been fabulous. If people wanted to reach out and connect with you, and um, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Uh, well, I'm active on social media on the Wild Common account, which is at wild.common. You can go to wildcommon.com to see, you know, a couple different images and some some brand imagery. And then I have my own website, which is andybarden.com. And there's, you know, contact form there. I'm on social media as well on all the channels. Um, pretty responsive and uh, we're a small team here. So if you hit us up, we'll get back to you. And just so people know that you're headquartered right here in Jackson. That's uh, right. You're, you're doing this all <laughs> from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, Jackson Hole, Wyoming and Mexico. I mean, I, I can't tell you, like I said, how many trips I've taken down there in the last uh, couple of years, but I'm really thankful to have great partners that I've been working with down there. Um, we trust each other through and through. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to tell their story and sh share their spirits with our community up here. And, you know, ideally by quarter two fingers crossed under the table here, things, you know, slowly get back to normal this summer, whether it's farmer's markets or music or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, lifestyle as normal in Jackson. Hopefully we get back to it. Yeah. I agree. I look forward to getting back to it as well and look forward to the day that we get to meet in person, Andy. Likewise. Yeah. Well, I do appreciate your time today and I wish you all the greatest success with your spirits brand and making agave spirits and bringing um, socially responsible and um, products to the shelves and to, to the forefront of what we consume in today's world. Yeah. And thanks for taking the time. I think, you know, you deserve some credit, um, for the podcast and the, uh, peeling back the onion, a little bit of the Jackson community. I think, you know, kudos to you for sharing all these stories and direct insights from the horse's mouth of, mm -hmm. you know, architects, designers, uh, you know, shooting in Jackson, Wyoming, whether it's, you know, rifles or cameras or wildlife tours. I think, you know, you've done an incredible job of, of fostering community in kind of a new way, a digital way. Um, so shout out to you, man. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Andy. I, I appreciate it. And I have so much fun getting to talk to everybody and I have, let's see, this week was episode 129. And so I've gotten to know about 129 people in a new way. And, and that's why I uh, associate having the podcast and it's just sitting down and it's so easy to just have a conversation with people and not having to plan it out. We plan so much in our life. Let's just have a, in, you know, unscripted conversation sometimes with somebody we don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, though, back to the very beginning of our conversation, it's, you know, maybe somebody listens to your podcasts and I don't care what industry they're in, whether it's, you know, the distillers south of town or somebody that is a mechanic or whoever it is, but that wall of disbelief, that barrier of disbelief we were talking about comes down for somebody, a young listener, an 18 year old, a 25 year old, a 30 year old, a 50 year old, doesn't matter. I think you're providing really valuable insights for people to hear tactically, like, how did you get to where you are? And I think that for me is like, that's the key. Like you see, it can be done and that may change somebody's trajectory. And I find that really interesting. I think that's really cool. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it speaks to you and, and other people as well. All right, man. Well, stay in touch and uh, I'll be sure to get some samples to you here soon enough. You got it. Thanks, Andy. Great to see Cheers. you today. Likewise. To learn more about Andy and Wild Common Spirits, visit the jacksonholeconnection.com episode number 133. Thank you, everybody who keeps on listening here to the Jackson Hole Connection. Michael Jorgensen, I really appreciate it. My wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William, 
and my editor and marketing director, Michael Mori. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of The Jackson Hole Connection.